Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Eat to Perform podcast. This is a episode recorded for the Coaches Course where we have a fascinating and hilarious discussion with Greg Knuckles from Strength Theory. Um, in this interview, Mike T. Nelson and I break down a lot of the components of strength and some of the basics of what you need to be successful in terms of um, becoming a better power lifter. We talk about some of the interesting things about nutrition, and then we also dive into how your toes should be in the squat, and then the infamous butt wink. So we think this is going to be a really great episode, and we hope you guys enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in. Today on the podcast, we have Greg Knuckles from Strength Theory. Uh, Greg is probably one of the most thorough and analytical people we have in the field. Uh, he puts out some really awesome content, and I know um, I've learned a ton from his work over the past you know, several years. And um, when we, we were looking to get you know, guests on for the course and to kind of expand our knowledge base, I couldn't think of somebody who'd be, um, you know, a better interview or somebody more fun to talk to because I know Greg and I have exchanged a few messages and stuff and he's a fascinating person and he's going to have a lot of information. So Greg, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I don't know a lot about your background and I'm sure a lot of other people don't know too much. I'd love to hear just kind of a little bit more about your, your story and where you've come from and how you have gotten to where you are today. Uh, there's not really that much to know, I don't guess. Uh, went to high school, went to college. Um, the plan was to be, was to do something with history. I'm not, I'm not good at planning ahead at all. Um, and so like, I always loved learning history and like didn't realize until I was in senior seminar that I absolutely hated any of the jobs I could have gotten with that degree. And so I was like, what else do I like? And I was like, I like lifting weights. That's fun. So I switched to exercise science and uh, just haven't really looked back since then. Um, so in terms of like um, competitive stuff, I've been powerlifting now for a decade this year. Um, it, it, it always feels weird now when I do that, kind of like the mental math, because I don't feel that old. It doesn't seem like I've been doing it for that long, but yeah, it's uh, it's been ten years that I've been powerlifting, um, and yeah, I'm I'm reasonably good at that. Um, it's it's fun. So yeah, I I lift weights and write about lifting weights and uh, help other people get good at lifting weights, and that's about it. <laughs> that's a that's a really good synopsis. Um, you know, one of the things that you're probably most well known for is just the way that you kind of approach the lifting piece. Now, when did you really start to kind of get into, you know, kind of breaking things down into more of, you know, the science and, and the mechanics behind things? You know, I think all of us kind of just start lifting um, and things organically grow, but when did you really start to kind of break stuff down? Um, is it is it really bad to say that it was like when I first started? No, not um, at all. So I'm a big nerd and that, that, that may not be all that surprising. Um, so like I taught myself basic physics back when I was really into basketball, just cause like I wanted to understand like the trajectory of the shot better and like just how that worked. Um, and so when I first started like really getting into lifting, um, like I took kind of that same um, inclination towards just like overanalyzing everything and, uh, just apply that to lifting. So, um, yeah, since, since I was probably 
when I first started lifting, I wasn't like that, that into it. Um, like I had an aptitude for it, but, uh, I was mainly just lifting to get better at sports. And then I got knocked out of competitive sports from a couple really big concussions. And, uh, so like, that's, that's when I started getting really more into lifting. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been nerding out about it since I was probably 16 or so. Uh, so eight years and didn't really start writing until a couple years ago. Cause I was just like, yeah, I'm just some dude. Why would people care? Um, but my wife was like, you talk about this stuff all the time. Like it's driving me crazy. Like write something about it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how writing came about. Just, uh, just to give my wife some peace of mind, basically. <laughs> <laughs> to, for you to put your thoughts somewhere else besides her at dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Awesome. So, you know, one of the, the big questions I think a lot of people have is, you know, when people want to get stronger, you know, you, you've obviously been in this a decade, you're coaching, um, and you run a pretty successful program. You know, what are kind of some basic fundamentals that people can take away in terms of trying to progress in strength? And I know that, you know, there's different types of progressions and kind of fundamentals for people who are beginners um, and advanced lifters, but for people who are just kind of starting out in strength training, what are some of the basic progressions or ideas that you like to give people who are beginners? Uh, people who are beginners, the biggest thing for them is just like learning how to actually lift weights and not jack themselves up doing it. Um, cause yeah, I mean, if you like to simplify way too much science and make it and simplify it way too much, basically the, the outcomes you get pretty much scale with the effort you can put into something. And if you have good form, you can put a lot of effort into something and you're not going to jack yourself up. If you don't have good form, then either you have to scale back the effort you're putting into it or you're going to jack yourself up or you put a lot of effort into it and then you do jack yourself up. So uh, <laughs> for, for a new lifter, getting, getting good at just whatever core lifts they're using in their program, that's really the biggest thing. And then, you know, uh, hypertrophy scales with training volume. Uh, strength scales with training intensity. Once you can lift weights effectively and not hurt yourself doing it, then you can ramp up volume, intensity, get big and strong. Um, so for new lifters, just getting good at lifting weights, that's that's the number one thing. So what do you think is kind of the, the time frame for people? You know, obviously there's varying levels of, you know, natural talent and aptitude, but, you know, for a lot of the, the normal, you know, distribution of people, what do you think is a good time frame for people to spend on really focusing on the basics of the form um, so they don't jack themselves up? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's something you never really stop focusing on because you, you can always get better. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of how long it generally takes most people to get to reach just like a baseline level of proficiency, uh, two or three months typically, um, it can, it can be considerably shorter than that if someone is actually like going to go out and hire a coach. Um, and just so people listening don't think I'm like trying to pimp my own services here. Not, <laughs> like I'm not talking about online coaches, like hiring a trainer who can work with you in person that you can't, it's hard to teach someone technique that well over the internet. I mean, someone who, who already has a good feel for the lift, you can, you know, notice things that are errant in their technique and point it out to them. 
And like they already have a decent understanding of how the lift is supposed to be. So yeah, you can correct stuff there. But someone who's new to it, they don't really have that feel for the lift yet. There's just not that much you can do for them over the internet. So uh, yeah, um, it, typically, you know, two, three, four months um, if you're going it alone. But it can be quite a bit faster than that if you have a coach to work with you in person. Okay. And what are some some benchmarks that you kind of use to judge when people have kind of reached a, a fairly proficient level? Do you have any kind of things that people can use as tests or anything like that? Um, well, okay. So kind of the number one biggest thing for any compound lower body stuff is you want to be able to maintain a neutral spine and you don't want your knees to cave in. Uh, you can like for someone who wants to compete and just lift as much weight as possible, you can get a lot more in depth than that. But for people just trying to hit like a baseline level of proficiency, if you can squat and deadlift without your knees caving and maintaining a neutral spine, like it's going to be a pretty decent squat or deadlift. So uh, that just making sure those two things are in place. Um, and then kind of the more important thing is being able to exert a lot of effort into a rep without your form breaking down when you do that. So anybody, most people, can lift something that's really light with good form and they're, you know, going slow, like thinking their way through it. But when you can kind of go on autopilot and just think, I'm trying to lift this bar as explosively as possible and your form still doesn't screw up when you do that, um, then then you've you've more or less hit like that basic level of mastery for the lifts. Okay. Um, to kind of cue on something you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, you said that strength scales with intensity and um, hypertrophy scales with volume. So when you t when we talk about that, you know, do you think that there is a role for, you know, people who are trying to get stronger um, to focus on hypertrophy work? Um, do you think that strength can kind of max out once you've kind of reached a peak for your body size? Um, do you think there's roles or is it appropriate for people to have specific hypertrophy work within programming? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. One second. I'm, uh, I'm going to, to pull this up because I, there was a study done by, um, Baruka and Abe. Um, they, one second, I'm just Googling this right fast. So, uh, what they did is they went to, um, powerlifting national championships and they, um, they looked to see how tall the lifters were, how much fat-free mass they had, and um, how much they could lift in the squat, bench, and deadlift. Um, and then they developed uh, regression equations for, um, for basically like how much muscle people had per unit of height and then how much they could lift. And so, like, for people listening to this who are into statistics, the correlation coefficients were super high. We're talking, like, 0.85 to 0.93, I believe. So really, really tight correlations between fat-free mass per unit height and how much they could lift. Um, and so the equation for their three-lift total was 1448.53 times fat-free mass per centimeter um, plus 77.32 and that could almost perfectly predict what someone would total. So, yeah, that's um, 
in people who were highly proficient in the lifts, like obviously if you're not very good at the lifts, you can get stronger just by getting better at the lifts. But that was in people who were competing at nationals. They were highly proficient in the lifts. And so the thing that explained 70% plus of their performance was just how, how much muscle mass they had per unit of height. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I think this is something that powerlifters don't focus on nearly enough. Um, especially it seems, it seems like these days. So, so I've been doing this for a while and it seems like maybe seven or eight years ago, like people only cared about the super heavyweights and it was always like, if you can move up a weight class, move up a weight class. And that was just, uh, and pe people, myself included, probably ended up moving up too many weight classes. But um, uh, it seems like it's kind of swung the opposite direction where, you know, like I'll have people email me. They're six feet tall. They're competing in the 165 class. And they're like, yeah, like my past four meets, my total has hardly improved at all. And I'm like... Well, that's because you're 165 at six foot. Like <laughs> you're you you need to put more muscle on your body if you're gonna lift more. And they're just like, oh no, but like the people in the 181 class are lifting so much more weight. I'm like, well, if you fill out to 181, you'll lift so much more weight. Like, come on now. <laughs> um but yeah, so I I do think there are a lot of people who uh very much underemphasize the role that just being jacked plays in lifting a lot of weight. Cause I mean, you can you can use your muscles as efficiently as possible, but ultimately, if you don't have that much muscle in the first place, it doesn't matter how how efficiently you're using them. Uh, you, the muscle needs to be there. So, yeah. So then, you know, people who want to focus on strength, obviously, at some point need to increase their size. Do you, what are your thoughts on what that looks like in terms of programming that into somebody who, let's say somebody who wants to be a power lifter, you know, they're obviously going to have to get some hypertrophy work in. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that's something that should be included in like accessory work or do you think there should be specific periods in their programming cycle that are more dedicated to hypertrophy work? Uh, I, I think it depends just kind of on the individual person's psychology. So um, some power lifters are, are totally fine having, whole training cycles, you know, 12, 16 weeks, whatever, um, just dedicated towards putting more muscle on their body, you know, and then they may only be competing every six months. So they spend half of that time getting jacked and, you know, then they're spending eight to 12 weeks lifting heavier, um, like improving their coordination, their skill of lifting really heavy weights. There are some people who are totally fine with that. And for them, I do think having like dedicated hypertrophy, like times in their training dedicated hypertrophy blocks is probably the best route to go. Um, but a lot of people, if they're like, if their strength drops off just a little bit, if they're lifting a little bit lower weight so they can get higher training volumes in, um, you know, and they test their one rep max and it's down a little bit, then they just go into like full crisis mode. They're just like, <laughs> Oh no, my training's not working. Like I'm up eight pounds. My body composition's the same, but I'm weaker. And I'm just like, you're weaker because you're not lifting as heavy. When you lift as heavy again, you'll be stronger. It's fine. But anyway, some people just like really freak out when that happens. Uh, so for them, like they should continue uh, going heavy on their main lift and then getting more uh, just like hypertrophy work in with their accessories. Okay. Um, you know, Mike, do you have any questions along these avenues before we kind of switch gears a little bit? 
Yeah, um, <clears throat> I know you're talking about um, hypertrophy and accessory work. Do you, do you have any thoughts about a, sort of a template split that you like? I mean, one that I've used with, I guess, more recreational type lifters is sort of the Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of, you know, mix of full body lifts, a little bit more strength focused for the most part. You know, one day may emphasize bench, one day may emphasize deadlift, one day emphasize squat. And then Tuesday, Thursday, I have what I call sort of the dude bra hypertrophy days, you know, just old school bodybuilding, isolation type stuff. And that seems to work good. I know, like you mentioned, a lot of power lifters do more. They're kind of main lifts first, more strength stuff, and then higher volume accessory work. Any thoughts on different templates or things you found that, that work good for people that are kind of looking for a little bit of a combination of both? Uh well, let me start by saying, like, I definitely feel you as far as, like, the dude bra work goes. Like, <laughs> like people can say... a dirty word. Oh, yeah. Like, people can say, I only care about how big my squat is. Like, they're filthy liars. They care how big their arms are. Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. There, there is you not a... You lifters flexing in the mirror every once in a while yeah. if you look close. Yeah. Like, there's not a red-blooded male on the planet who doesn't want 18-inch arms and, like, capped delts. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, just, that's a fact. Like, that is an indisputable fact. Um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I find in general just being able to hit everything at least twice a week. Um, so really any split that allows for that. So if someone's only training three times a week, then, um, that's typically going to be like full body, but you know, one day may focus more on a particular muscle group. So they may be doing full body every day, but one day focus more on back or legs or shoulders or whatever. Um, for people who are training like four or five days a week, uh, for four days a week, I, I do like upper lower splits for five upper lower plus like just one straight arms and shoulders day. Um, and then for like six plus days a week, um, usually like a, something like a push pull leg split, something like that. So back and buys, chest and tries and legs, you know, that's another thing. That's another thing. Um, Something I think is funny is, like, uh, people just, like, throw all of this shade, like, body part splits, and they're just like, oh, like, that's just, that's what bros do. That's not evidence-based. They're like, <laughs> they're like push-pull legs. That's cool. It's like, push-pull legs is literally back and buys, chest and tries legs. Like, that is, that is a dyed-in-the-wool bodybuilding bro split. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, it, it depends how many days per week people are lifting, but. Those are those are the ones I typically use. And along those lines, if someone has sort of the time, so let's say they have about eh, an hour a day, you know, five days a week, right? So the typical person who's working, maybe it's over lunch or maybe it's after work or that type of thing. Have you found that having them go up to a frequency of five days a week is a little bit better than three days a week? Or have you noticed a big difference from one person versus the next person? Uh, I notice a big difference per person and also like per body part. Um, I found a lot of people can get away with and also like need to bench much more frequently, especially than deadlifting. Hmm. Um, but like, I, I don't know that many people who really benefit from deadlifting more than about twice a week. Um, but I, I've trained several people who 
they were benching two or three times a week and like nothing they could do could get their bench to go up. And then just distributing that volume among like benching five days a week made a huge difference. Um, mm. And that's that's how it is for me, too. That's one reason why my bench is stalled, because I, I hate benching. I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> it's just it's such a dumb lift. Uh, <laughs> but um, like my bench does not improve unless I'm benching pretty hard at least four days a week. And I just can't bring myself to bench hard four days a week. Like I just, I just don't like the lift that much. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I think, I think a lot of it just has to do with people tend to do best with as much volume as they can recover well from. Um, and how, how much volume that is will depend person to person, but then also just on how inherently fatiguing the lift is. Like most people just find deadlifts more inherently fatiguing, and when you when you get pretty good at benching, um, you know you have pretty good technique. You don't have achy elbows or shoulders or anything. Um, it just doesn't wear you out that much to bench. So uh, I think a lot of people do benefit from higher frequency bench just for that reason, just because it's an inherently less fatiguing lift. Cool. And last question I had on that too is, do you think some of the fatigue? So I've heard other people report the same thing with with squatting. And and granted, there's a subpopulation that has you know, done, I know Brad's done this to the, the squad every day type, um, programs, but I've often wondered if the reason for less frequency with most deadlifts is obviously the weight, but also the compression, do you think on the spine matters where bench press is in a completely different angle, you know, over different parts of the spine versus the full length of the spine per se? That's a that's a really good question, and I'm really not sure. Um, I don't know either. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, like overtraining and central fatigue is something I've been reading more about. Um, one of the th like probably the hypothesis that makes the most sense to me, at least um, at the moment among people who aren't hypocaloric, um, it's probably the cytokine hypothesis, um, which is, where, can you explain that for everyone who's listening. Yeah, yeah I, I was, I was going to, I, I wasn't oh, just going to like drop that. <laughs> cytokine, um, that's it. We'll see us drop big words and walk away from it. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, it's not all that complicated. So basically, um, when you train, you cause inflammation and cytokine levels, there are these chemicals that have to do with the inflammatory process, among other things. But most important here is the inflammatory process. Um, and cytokine, dang it. If I would have known I was talking about this, I would have got the exact ones. I know like cytokine. IL-6 is the muscle-induced one. Yeah, uh, IL-6, IL, I think one beta and IL-10, I think are the three most important. doesn't matter. Um, anyway, those, those signal in your brain and like for, to use a very scientific term, just make you feel like garbage. Um, that, those are, it's, it's a similar signaling pathway to what actually makes you feel bad when you're sick. So like running a fever, you're burning more energy, whatever. Like that would make you feel a little like lethargic, but not just like bad, bad. Um, but it's the cytokines themselves that 
make you just feel like poop when you're sick. And it's kind of the same thing with central fatigue and uh, overreaching. So if you're if you're in a big calorie deficit, there are a ton of other things in place. Serotonin's a big one, but it seems like if you're at maintenance or in a surplus, um, I, I find that the cytokine hypothesis, uh, inflammation, just how that makes you feel, has a lot of inflammatory or uh, <laughs> I about said inflammatory power, uh, explanatory <laughs> power. Um, and so, yeah, I. I, it could just be that deadlifts, because they're using like so much muscle mass through such a long range of motion, just cause more inflammation. I could see that for bench, but I don't really see that for squat. <sighs> I don't know. When you when you do squats a lot, though, you don't really get all that sore anymore. Most people always get sore when they deadlift. So it could just be that deadlifts inherently cause more inflammation and so cytokine hypothesis of overtraining. Another thing it could be, um, this is way out of left field, but dead, so something I found is that I can handle a lot higher deadlift frequency when I always pull with straps because my hands mm. don't get beat up. Mm-hmm. So I think I think some people like they could just lose a little bit of motivation to train if they're deadlifting frequently with high volumes and their hands just feel like hamburger meat all the time. Because I mean, you do everything with your hands. That's like every time you grip something, that's like noxious afferent feedback to your central nervous system that says like something is wrong. I feel it. My hands hurt. So there could be something like that going on with deadlifts because that, that is something that sets it apart from squats. I'm really not sure, though. See, that's great. You know, I love the fact that people are getting to hear a good conversation of there's a lot of unknowns out there um, and that we all try to just figure it out with based on the information we have. And one thing I've noticed which is purely anecdotal is that if you dramatically increase people's intake of micronutrition, so we talked about this in the course, too, and... I'm a big fan of just mixing, you know, veggie shakes and cramming as much veggies and even some fruit down your pie hole as you can. Mm-hmm. And it it seems to be that joint pain usually goes down, which could be related to inflammation. And completely anecdotally, it seems like people can lift heavier more frequently. So someone who had very, let's say, poor micronutrition, you know, may be able to add one more heavy-ish day per week, which, mm-hmm. you know, on its face doesn't seem like a lot. But you know, if you take that out over a year that's you know 50 more sessions of potentially getting stronger mm-hmm. um i don't have any data to to back that up it could be a whole host of a bunch of different things too but yeah i'll be honest i don't eat hardly any vegetables like i just i just i don't like vegetables <laughs> um but what i do eat a ton of is berries mm-hmm. and i've like berries just anecdot- just anecdotally i found the same thing like um I like getting just like a quart of blueberries and like saying this is for the week, but then it's like a day and a half. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when, when I'm eating a ton of berries, I find that I recover better as well. So there may yeah. be something to that, or it could just be a placebo. Yeah. And that's always the hard part too. And there was a couple, I think one study for sure that looked at uh, heart rate variability related to fruit and vegetable intake, but I haven't seen anything in lifters in terms of um, lifting frequency or performance or anything like that. So what did, uh, what did that study find with HRV in fruits and vegetables? It did show that as you increased uh, fruit and vegetable intake, that HRV improved and I've tried this experiment a couple times on myself with, actually you mentioned berries. Um, I did it with a couple of clients and 
if you tried to isolate different types of vegetables, so I did, you know, normal vegetables, and then I did just berries. Again, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of people, anecdotal. It seemed to be the berries had a much more powerful effect on HRV nice. and performance. I'll take uh, it. Whether that's anthrocyanides or other, you know, compounds in there that we haven't even figured out yet. No idea, but um, but I have noticed that. Or it could just be that the people are happier eating blueberries than chugging some juiced kale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that if you take too much kale, it's just so disgusting after a while. I think it'll take years <laughs> off your life, but that's fine. You know, I, I do think <laughs> I do think there there's definitely stuff beyond even just like vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, oh. like there could be stuff in blueberries we don't even know about. People are gonna listen to this and just think I'm like something. <laughs> but like yeah, I, I remember reading a study not too long ago that um uh, I think it, I think it was asparagus extract um, mm-hmm. had pretty strong like anti-lipidemic qualities. Um, it was either that or um, like anti-diabetic qualities. I can't even remember because that's not like the stuff I pay attention to. But yeah, it was asparagus extract, and it was it had like pretty profound effects on some some markers of metabolic health. So, yeah, it really wouldn't surprise me if there's just, like, just random good shit in fruits and vegetables that, like, since it's not, like, classified as vitamins or minerals, like, it just hasn't really been studied. But we'll see. Yeah, I know broccoli has uh, sulforaphane, which is one of the main compounds in it that's been very beneficial. There's, like, 300 other ones that they've only identified. It's um, the Nerf 2 activator, Mike. It's a what? It's a Nerf 2 activator. That's right. You can tell us all about that. Um, but I know Monsanto has been trying for a couple of years, actually presented at Experimental Biology like four years ago now, I think, that they're trying to create super broccoli that has these super high um, levels of it, which was interesting. And their theory was that you can either maybe sell it to a supplement company to capsulate it for some type of potential treatment, make a drug out of it. Or maybe in the future there'll be a, a market for these super super vegetables. So that's interesting. But it it seems like the people who care the most about Wouldn't health want are a also Monsanto. yeah are, are also like yeah. the like anti GMO activists. Yeah. Oh man, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, you know we could continue down the. Uh, the berry rabbit hole for a while, but um, yeah, I kind of want you guys didn't have me on here to talk about fruits <laughs> and vegetables. So. Hey, this, this has been interesting to me. So who I'm cares about the core of blueberries for your gift? So yeah, I'll send you some, <laughs> uh, some Washington grown apples too in the fall. Ooh. Oh man. I, I love apple. What's, what's your favorite kind of apple? Like I, I ask you as a Washingtonian, um, honey crisp apples, like fresh mm. off the tree. Yes. Yeah. And if you like, I can go pick them in an orchard, not like twenty minutes from my house, and they're like $1.80 a pound. And you buy them in the store, and they're like six bucks a pound. Oh, it's criminal. I thought you picked them for free. Ooh, your your store is screwing you. It's like a buck a buck ninety eight where I am. Yeah. See, I don't know. And you're you're probably farther away from the orchards than I am. Probably so. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, so we'll, that's uh, my second favorite. I like pink lady apples. Have you had those? Yes, mm. those are good too. So good. Yeah. So I, I bet, uh, going I'll, back to GMOs, I bet the ones I had were, were just <laughs> like GM. They were they were like the size of cantaloupes. I'm not even kidding. They were like they were like two forty nine a pound, and each one was like six bucks. I was like, what the heck? They, <laughs> they they were legit like 
three quarters as big as my head. You're it was like, so I could have four sweet potatoes or one apple, and they both equal <laughs> my uh, daily carb intake. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to log it in my fitness pal, and it was like apple, large, uh, diameter up to three and a half inches or something. I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm going to put three Six. servings in? <laughs> oh, man. All right, so another, a couple other questions, probably uh, more towards the the normal Greg Knuckles that we know and love from the online articles is first I want to ask you about, you know, one of the questions that we get more often than I can, if I had a a nickel for every time somebody asked me, I would be retired by now, but you know, toes in the squat forward or a little bit outside, or does it really depend on the person and their hip structure and all those sort of things? Yeah. So I'm the biggest thing with toes is, so there's two things. One, you don't want to jack up your knees. And two, you don't want to lose your balance. So in general, toe position should be set by what your hips are doing. So if you naturally feel really comfortable uh, without a ton of hip abduction, knees tracking pretty much straight ahead, then your toes should also be pretty much straight ahead. Um, if you feel more comfortable abducting your hips a lot, then you don't want your toes pointed straight ahead and then be in a bunch of functional knee varus. Um, that's going to put a lot of stress on your um, lateral meniscus and probably LCL as well. So, yeah, I mean, just the basic rule that uh, your knee should be tracking over your big toe or your second toe, they're about somewhere in that general area. Um, and so just let your hips do whatever they're comfortable doing That'll determine what your knees are doing. And then what your knees are doing should determine what your toes are doing. I mean, you're not squatting with your feet. So just let your feet accommodate your knees and hips. Um, kind of the trade-off there, though, is if you have, if you feel most comfortable squatting with just like an exceptional amount of hip abduction, so your toes would be pointed like, 60 degrees out or more it's like a plie it, and not a squat yeah yeah i mean that's kind of how i squat so thank you um, <laughs> but uh but yeah then then you can have balance issues just because your foot is so short front to back uh mm-hmm. it's easy to lose your balance especially to the front uh so then you may actually want your toes pointed um a little bit further ahead so you're in just like a, a tiny amount of functional knee varus um you know, just, just so you can keep your balance and not fall forward. Uh, but for the most part, toe position should be dictated by what your hips and knees are doing. Awesome. So there's, you know, there's a lot of people who say your toe should be straight ahead. Um, that's obviously one of those things that's not as true as we read on a lot of popular Twitter feeds and things like that. Can, can I, okay. <laughs> I just, I just want to make like this one little point right here. So, um, I'm not I'm not going to like name names and try to like start a flame war, but the the reason I hear for that is like, oh, you want your toes pointed straight ahead because then you try to screw them into the ground and that causes hip torque. But like torque torque isn't just like something that's floating around in the ether. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a dimensional thing. Like it has a direction associated with it. So if you're pointing your toes straight ahead and screwing your hips into the ground, yeah, that's creating torque in your hips, but it's external rotation torque. Like, you have to produce hip extension torque to squat. Like, it's torque, but it's in a completely irrelevant plane. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's, you know, that's probably the, uh, the best synopsis I've heard of that argument. <laughs> so that, that was perfect. 
Um, my thought on that too is that wouldn't you be torquing your knees also because you're torquing from both directions, right? This is true. So wouldn't that, and my theory is that wouldn't that potentially increase a risk of injury? I think it may help your lift maybe a, a little bit, but I don't know. It just seems to me like a, a not the best argument and potentially there's more risk associated with it than performance, but... Yeah, I mean, putting a rotational torque on a hinge on a hinge joint generally isn't the best idea from what I know, but Ooh, and let's put it under load. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. I mean, a- another thing is like, I mean, even soft tissues, like they do adapt to loading, mm-hmm. and I I do think people tend to catastrophize movement a little bit too much. Um so kind of the opposite would be like um internal rotation, knee valgus, but like really good weightlifters, they're catching really, really heavy, like especially snatches and a lot of internal rotation and knee valgus, like yep. just cause it lets them get deeper and like, they're not exploding their knees doing it. So I don't, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but I also think the arguments used to support it from a performance context are somewhat nonsensical. Yeah. And my, my fear with that is that someone's going to read somewhere on the internet that they need to start doing this now. They're not going to allow their tissue to adapt to it, and they're going to change their technique overnight with a heavier load, and their tissue is yeah. just not prepared to handle that. I mean, if you look at Olympic weightlifters or look at the Chinese team or whatever, they've probably been doing that for months to years to maybe decades in some cases. So yeah. their tissue yeah. can handle it. That doesn't mean your tissue could handle it. Yeah, yeah. Like t- telling that to someone who's pretty new and they're not loading it that much in the first place, yeah, there's probably time to adapt. But if someone goes from like trying to squat 500 one way to 500 a completely different way, may not be the best idea. Yeah. Awesome. So my next question is also controversial. Um, what's the deal with butt link? I don't know, man. <laughs> like, so I think the the best the best thing I read on the subject uh, was from Dean Somerset. Um, so if, if you could like link that in the show notes or something, uh, butt wink is not about the hamstrings, but it it doesn't just talk about hamstrings. It talks about what it is more than likely. So um, in my experience, there there are two major causes. One is just like some people aren't built very well to squat. And so, you know, maybe they have super long femurs and also really poor ankle mobility. And so they're leaning way far forward to squat. <coughs> for a lot of people, for most people, um, like a... a 120 to maybe 140 degrees of hip flexion is full range of motion at that joint, usually closer to about 120. So like for a lot of those people, before they're reaching depth in the squat, they're hitting in range of motion hip flexion. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that be because of some like muscular tightness or just bone on bone or whatever, they're hitting full range of motion for that joint. They're not at parallel yet. They need to keep going deeper their ankles won't track farther forward, so they can't get that from their knees, and so their butt has to tuck under. So for some people, it is just they're built poorly, general movement restriction, and they're just kind of screwed. Um, and then for other people, it's it's a control issue. So uh, this was one of the points that 
Dean made in that article. So an assessment you can do is uh, you get on the floor on your hands and knees and um, like you drop your chest towards the floor. So essentially um, like your shoulders would be roughly straight in front of where your feet would be. So the alignment's pretty similar to a squat. And then you just push back against the floor and try to rock your hips back. And if the crease of your hip can get behind where your knee is, so if you were standing up, the crease of your hip would be below where your knee is, then you have adequate range of motion to squat. Um, and so in that case, it's going to be a control issue. So if you have the ground to support you, you can get that range of motion. When you're standing up, and especially if you're putting a bar on your back, then you can't get that range of motion, and so your butt's tucking under to compensate for just not being able to control. Um, so for people like that, what tends to work best, um, just anecdotally, I found that most people just naturally brace a lot more effectively, um, starting with an anteriorly loaded movement. So starting with goblet squats, like 99% of people can do a pretty decent looking squat if you have them goblet squat. And then if you put a bar on their back, things may just go to hell. But with the goblet squat, they can do something that looks pretty decent. So get to where they can do pretty heavy goblet squats with good lumbar position, then move to front squats, another anteriorly loaded movement, um, then when they can front squat really well, um, high bar back squat, so they don't have to extend quite as much to get back there. When they can high bar squat well, then move them on to low bar squat. So if it is a control issue, if they pass that test where they're kneeling on the ground and they can get their hips back behind their knees, um, then it is generally a control issue. That helps most people. Uh, if that doesn't help someone, then uh, progressive range of motion works pretty well. So... Um, like just box squats, starting with a high box, um, like above the point where their butt would start tucking under and then just progressively working just a little bit lower each week as they can. Awesome. You know, I think that's probably the, the best advice I've heard in terms of pragmatically how to, how to deal with it. Um, you know, instead of getting into all the, all the details about maybe what causes it, because for most people that's not going to fix their problem. I think those are really awesome tools for people to use to try to, you know, see if it is a problem, what the problem is, and then make a fix on it. I had a quick question on that, too. One of, I don't know, and I've, I don't know who I stole this from. If I did, I'll give them credit. But um, I agree with a lot of Dean's stuff. I agree with your your screen and all that stuff. And the progression, I think, like Brad said, is is awesome and very useful for people. I've often wondered, though, if, sort of hypothetically, if you can brace effectively enough, right? So in essence, you can keep your pelvic floor, your pelvis where it is, you can keep your low uh, back where it is, you can keep your lower ribs down. So that whole core area, right? If you look at it like a can, you can mm -hmm. basically keep it extremely rigid during the lift or stable mm -hmm. that you wouldn't really have any butt wink per se, but you may squat higher than what you're used to before. Right, so if you're holding that area stable, and in essence, if you run out of space, so to speak, instead of having your your spine move, you're basically would just stop there in your squat. What are your thoughts on that? Does that make oh, no, any like, sense at all? Yeah, yeah, it does, and I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with that. I think, um, I think like like just really beautiful ass to grass squats, like you see from a lot of weightlifters. I think that's become like almost like fetishized 
mm-hmm. to where mm-hmm. like that's just like the ideal and not just like it's something that's worth you know trying to pursue but like it's been taken to the point where people say like everyone should expect to be able to do that if they're doing yeah. everything right and like if you can't get in that position you're doing something wrong and that's that's baloney like that's that's stupid like there there are a ton of people who aren't going to be able to squat ass to grass so i i do think yeah like like you were saying i think a lot of it just comes from people um kind of pursuing positions that it's just not reasonable for them to ever really like expect to get into like someone who does have super long femurs or maybe just like really like jacked up ankles like you know those people aren't going to be able to squat super deep um I read an interview, I think it was on Brett Contreras' site with, uh, with Stu McGill and Mm -hmm. that this helped like reinforce a lot of that for me. Cause like I, I had had a few clients who like, if they were breaking parallel, like it was just going to look really just stupidly ugly. And so like those guys weren't competitive powerlifters and it was just like, bro, like you don't need to squat to parallel, like squat as deep as you can. Like when your butt starts tucking under before that happens, just come up like that's fine. And like, I felt, I don't know, like I was doing something wrong almost by that. Um, (laughs) and like, so, so keep in mind, um, I come from the North Carolina Piedmont and like, there's a lot of people of like Irish and Scottish ancestry who live there. Um, and so then when I read that interview with Stu McGill, he talked about what's called the Scottish hip. And it's mm-hmm. just like a really common thing from people with Scottish ancestry. Uh, just their hip structure doesn't let them get, uh, you know, it may it may let them sort of approach parallel, get close to that. But they're just never going to squat deep, like not super deep. And the thing that McGill said is like, if those people can't break parallel and it look good, like they should just squat above parallel and then they're not going to jack themselves up. It's not going to hurt them to squat so they can it may be a limited range of motion, but they can still get in more volume and higher intensity squatting that way. So that's a better way for them to squat. I was like, thank you, Stu McGill. That's what I thought too, (laughs) but you're Stu McGill and I'm not. So you saying that makes me feel better. And one quick thing I'll add on that too, is that I did a a fresh tissue cadaver dissection with uh, Tom Myers in Arizona last year. And it was beyond amazing, but what was really cool is that uh, the bodies actually hadn't been uh, fixed, so it was all fresh tissue, so you could do range of motion um, testing on them. So we mm-hmm. went around, did a bunch of range of motion, and I was interested in looking at that in terms of squatting mechanics. So a lot of the cadavers initially had you know, pretty heavy restrictions. Again, you don't know the joint structure and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is as the, the days progressed so on like day three, we had the lower body on pretty much all the bodies all the muscles were detached. Everything was off. The skin was off. The only thing left was uh, the bone structure, then the hip socket itself, so the hip capsule. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is that the cadaver I had and a couple other ones, you know, man, they could squat two, three, four inches, ass to grass, no problem. Pelvis didn't move at all. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other cadavers, pretty athletic-looking um, guy, he maybe could get to parallel maybe an inch below. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty interesting to see the difference there just once you remove all the soft tissue, just looking at the hip capsule and the bone structure itself. So, Yeah, that's, that's 
I'm glad you said that because something uh, something I've heard from a lot of people is I, I think I think another thing is people overplay like I okay one second I'm I'm going four different directions at once so um, range of motion for muscles is very very largely controlled by just neural factors so muscle tone stretch tolerance etc. But I think people do overplay that to some degree where they're just like, oh, yeah, like if I put a bullet in your head right now and there was no like central control of yeah. muscle tone, like Anesthesia. you could go through you could go through any range of motion out there. But so it's nope. it's good to hear you say, uh, yeah, this guy, it's just his hip, his hip capsule itself. Like, it's not good to hear that that person died. That's sad. But <laughs> it's good It's good to hear you say that just his hip, his hip capsule was still, like, restricting range of motion. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised by that. I actually thought I was going to find more depth than what we actually saw. And again, it's, you know, you're dealing with, uh, I think we only had eight total bodies and that type of thing. So it's a, a limited thing, but I, I agree with you. But the fact that you found one out of eight should suggest that it's not just a you know, a very small percentage. It's likely a larger percentage of people than we would have initially assumed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the last quick thing on that too, what was really freaky on the body I had was we tested the knee, right knee didn't move hardly at all. So, you know, we start dissecting, we take the skin off, and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to be a good little scientist. I'm just going to test the range of motion again, thinking, ah, it'll be super restricted, just got some, you know, bummed up knee or whatever. And the knee goes from only going about yeah, 10 degrees before to a full 90 degrees with, like, no problem. What? I'm like, what the hell? And what, I'm like, what do, oh. you, what do you think did that? Well, my first thought was, oh, my God, I screwed up. I cut some stuff I wasn't supposed to. So I, I called a guy running the lab over there who's you know, been doing this for years. I said, yeah, I took the skin off, and now the knee goes to, like, 90 degrees. It only went 10 degrees before. And he goes, yeah, that happens, and like wanders off. I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean that happens? So, I went and got Tom Myers to come over, and he's like, "Yeah, we've seen that in a fair amount of bodies." And I thought, you know, later I'm still thinking in my head, I'm gonna find something jacked up in the knee. I'm gonna find something's messed up later. Knee looked perfect, and he said that they believe that a lot of times because the skin isn't really that elastic. Mm -hmm. that people sometimes get adhesions between the skin and the top layer of the fascia and the muscle itself, and that the skin may actually be one of the things causing uh, joint restriction in some people. What? And that just blew me away. And I'm like, I've never read that anywhere. I've never heard of that. But it kind of makes sense. But because, you know, all your muscle and stuff's kind of sliding in a sack of skin. <laughs> yeah, you wonder if, like, you know, local trauma causes scar tissue to form between the, the fascia and the skin. So if you had, like, right. previous injuries or something. Yeah, 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 but, but some, something like that. I mean, like, can't the, can't the hamstrings pretty comfortably produce enough knee flexion torque to where if it was, like, the skin gumming up the works there, you just, like, Break rip the up. skin open? That's like, what I would have skin's always not thought. that strong. That's what I would have always thought too. But again, maybe she had some injury. Maybe she got immobilized, or who, who knows, right? You don't know the history on any of the people, so that's what you know makes it really difficult. Um, but the fact that that was even possible was still causes my head to spin around. <laughs> 
That's that's weird. I I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 make that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, it still makes me feel uncomfortable, and I was the one who did it. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's enough sidetrack to ever talk. <laughs> that's no, that's super cool. You should write a book that that's just like everything you think about anatomy is wrong, and not like try to offer solutions to any of it just be like ask yep. scary questions <laughs> yeah just like yeah. yep. here's what i saw you're dumb and just yep. and then the last two things on that just quick notes the psoas actually does attach and disappear into the diaphragm which is beyond weird like you cannot pull apart the diaphragm and where the psoas is it, it literally just disappears into it which i don't remember learning that ever before either <laughs> and then they had one group, so they took the quad, and they cut it just a little window in the skin, about four inches by four inches. One second, brief aside, did you see there's another quad muscle? Now it's the quince. Yeah, I did see that. Really? The Where? Of the, the tensor of the vastus intermedius, the TVI. For real? Yeah. Yeah, somebody pub, uh, put a link to the paper the other day. Wow. Yeah, and, and to make sure it wasn't just like one thing, it was like it was like twelve cadavers, and they found it in all of them. Wow, that's crazy! Now I got to go look that up. What was the name of it? Uh, the tensor of the vastus intermedius. So now huh. for the next three weeks, we all get to be pedantic, and when people say, "Oh, my quads are sore," you can be like, "Actually, your quints are sore." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this is related to it, but they cut a window in the quad, in the top part. And what they did is they took and they poked needles in there for just markers, right? So they find the rectus femoris, they find, you know, the vastus intermedialis, and they put little needles in there all lined up in a nice row. And then what they did is they took the hip and they brought the knee up towards the chest, so flexion, and then they brought the heel towards their butt. So, you know, just basically like doing quote-unquote a leg curl, use common mm -hmm. terms. And <coughs> what they showed was that the one in the rectus femoris didn't move that much, and the other ones slid past at a couple inches. Hmm. And I'm thinking, hmm. what the? And you see it, and you're like, do that again. Wait, and wait, so so hip flexion and knee flexion? Right, so they held the, the leg in hip flexion and then just mm -hmm. moved the knee. Huh. And if you... Think about it, right? Because the rectus femoris crosses the hip and crosses the knee, that the other muscles, in essence, slide underneath it more mm -hmm. than what you would realize, right? So there's more independent sort of movement of one quad next to the other one. One second, one second. So did they see the the um, rectus femoris? The pin stuck in that. Did it move when the hip flexed at all, or um, it did like, a little did bit, it... but not that much. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And they're hopefully it's supposed to be out like this year. They're trying to write it up and do like a formal study on it. But because you hear a lot of stuff of, oh, you know, the fascia stuck to the other one and they need to slide next to each other. And on one hand, you're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But on the other <laughs> hand, you you've just been sort of classically taught that. Ah, you know, the quads kind of do, the, you know, the same motion except for the rectus femoris and, you know, the other three do the same thing. And so it was pretty wild to see how they are probably a little bit more independent than what we realize, I guess. That, that is, that is really interesting.
like so this this is also random like one thing <laughs> one one of one of my like sort of uh just bro beliefs about getting good at lifting um i find that for myself there's there's not just like a small difference but like a really like actually very big difference um between just like if i'm just kind of active or not so like i have a pretty sedentary job um but like if i'm you know just like taking my dog on walks more frequently um like nothing that's going to have say any sort of like aerobic training payoff or anything like Mm -hmm. like nothing that's going to have a meaningful training effect um just if i'm just generally up moving around more uh training is so much better like Mm -hmm. dramatically better uh my squat's pretty similar but that can make like legit a 10 to 15 percent difference on my deadlift like pretty noticeable so i wonder if that has anything to do with it just stuff doesn't get quite as gummed up to use scientific terms Hmm. Yeah, I, I've noticed that since, you know, a lot of the work I do is sedentary also, especially when I finished my PhD, that I was just like one big block of non-moving fashion <laughs> connective <laughs> tissue. And I timed my steps once. I got like 800 steps a day. It was pretty abysmal. Um, I, I've been I've been below oh. the, uh, the four digits before. Yeah, that's just the cardiac <laughs> transplant patients walk farther than that. Um, yeah. But... I noticed the same thing that I, you know, even now I just program, you know, get up, go for a walk. If I get real stuck during the day and mentally feel off, you know, go for a little bit more walk again, walk to the gym or whatever. And you just, and I've noticed this in clients too. You just feel so much better. You know, the amount of warm ups I need to do is not that much, you know, mm-hmm. compared to days, you just feel just not moving around that much at all. You just feel stuck, like literally physically more stuck, which, you know, could be lots of things, but. Notice the same thing. Interesting. Okay, so th- this this is just like the bro science podcast, right? Like this <laughs> yes. Is gonna turn We're going to label it bro just, science I'm... with Greg Knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, yeah, I think, um, yeah, whatever. There goes my credibility. It's fine. Like, <laughs> it was fun recording this podcast, see, so think, it's worth it. I think that's so great because people need to know that, like, even the – the very scientific analytical people still have a lot of this mentality and think very similarly. So it's, uh, it's not like we are completely different human beings and we are, uh, there's, there's nothing else besides data and numbers. There's a lot of other things that float around up in our heads too. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you should expect a fair amount of that. Cause like if you look at most things related to sports science, it's, there's there's a big gap between say like sports science and like quantum physics like mm-hmm. because the NSF cares a lot more about you know discovering elementary particles or even you know like helping hip transplant hip transplant patients uh, like regain functioning and quality of life be able to perform activities of daily living like those things are a lot higher kind of on the research pecking order than like what's going to help me squat 10 pounds more, like add an inch to my (laughs) biceps. And so like the science is progressing a lot and it's, it seems to be accelerating. Um, I, I think that could just be perception, but it, it it seems like it is. It seems like there's more good researchers in this field than there were maybe like five years ago. Mm -hmm. They're doing some really good work, but 
there are just, there is there are a lot of unanswered questions and there is still plenty of room for speculation. Yeah. And you know too, the other thing is quantum physics has been, you know, a systematically studied field by the smartest people in the world for 100 years and mm-hmm. you know, exercise science maybe 30 40 years. So yeah. we're um we're on the the hockey stick curve, part of the curve I like to think. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Even in physics, you still have people that can't agree on if string theory is the correct theory we should use. Oh, you know, so even in, in fields that have been around for a long time and heavily studied, there's still tons of stuff they don't know. And I think what you're saying, too, is that I think it just speaks to the level of questions that everyone has about just exercise in general that we're just beginning to try to figure out so Mm -hmm. if you want good entertainment watch youtube videos of physicists arguing about the interpretation of quantum mechanics it's awesome have have you seen (laughs) uh have you seen kind of in in both physics and mathematics the I hope I I hope I can use this word on this podcast but just the absolute like shit storm that's brewing uh because there there's a pretty I think compelling hypothesis that's been put forth that we're within like a couple decades from just like the end of abstract mathematics and the end of physics. Cause for, um, for mathematics in the past, like five years or so, there have been quite a few proofs that like the person may have proved them, but they are so far and away the expert in that one little niche yep. of mathematics that no one can verify their proof. Mm-hmm. So if if you can prove stuff and no one can verify it, like what does what does that have to say about the future of like abstract mathematics? So um, some people are starting to think that that's going to be Come like sort of a more generalized thing within mathematics pretty soon, uh, and a lot of that just has to do with how many people are mathematicians. So there's like ten thousand more mathematicians now than there were in like the 1800s. And the way that like a math PhD works is like you have to have like a novel contribution to mathematics to get your PhD. So there's thousands and thousands of people making these novel contributions and people were like, we're going to run out eventually. Um, and in physics, it's more a matter of instrumentation. So they can come up with like, they call them theories. I have a hard time accepting them as theories because of how theories are defined in science. But these ideas, um, where, you know, they may never have instrumentation that's able to directly test them. So, it may be like a post Popperian science, like mm-hmm. where falsifiability has to be thrown out the window, but interesting stuff. Totally related to exercise. Okay, let's <laughs> get back. <laughs> Maybe the, uh, you know, how physics has kind of put itself a part of philosophy. And, you know, there's like Lawrence Krauss, he always says that philosophy is dead and we don't, we don't need philosophy. Philosophy's answered all the, or physics can now answer all the questions that philosophy can't. Well, maybe we're going to revert back to where, you know, once you run out of testable questions, it's going to be philosophy all over again. It'll be like the the big bang and the big crunch that's not going to happen, but it'll be the same thing. <laughs> I just think Lawrence Krauss opining about philosophy is adorable, but that's that's another <laughs> that's another conversation entirely. Oh, all right. Well, before we get too far off the rails, um, you know, we've we've had you for about an hour now, so we'll uh. We'll let you get back to your evening, but Greg, man, it was great to get you on the line. Uh, I love your work. I'm a big fan. It was uh, a pleasure to talk to you, and um, thanks so much for taking the time to give us some knowledge. Yeah, thank you very much.
Thank, thanks for having me. Um, hopefully it wasn't that big of a disappointment that I'm <laughs> so much different than I am in my articles. Uh, no, I yeah. think it's awesome. I'm in for the blueberry article. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I need I need to come up with like a witty acronym like like go mad but for blueberries. Go berry. Oh, I I tried I tried to uh, ironically float uh, the acronym dead for a while for a dozen eggs a day. Uh, there was <laughs> there was some research out of. I want to say the the researcher's name was Reichman, I believe, uh, but it was Texas A and M, um, and it it pro I don't know how relevant it is to healthy young people, uh, but he found that muscle hypertrophy in the um, like sixty ish year old cohort he was studying uh, was pretty strongly related to dietary cholesterol intake, um, even independent of protein intake. So I just like. Because because people are still terrified of dietary cholesterol, um, I just liked a dozen eggs a day or dead because people would think <laughs> it would kill them in the first place. That's good. That that's uh, that's very ironic, and that's irony is one of the best parts of life, right? So, and I think that I like does match. There was another study several years ago now, I think, showing that cholesterol itself was mildly anabolic in certain populations. So, hmm. interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll leave people with that nugget to chew on of maybe um, we're going to start prescribing a dozen eggs a day. So, <laughs> all right, Greg. Hey, man. Well, thanks. It was great to chat with you. We'll uh, touch base with you soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too.